Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello all, I'm Jesse Bengoa and welcome to this episode of the It Starts Within podcast from Platinum Performance. Today, my guest is an amazing equine veterinarian who practiced for over 20 years at California's Steinbeck Equine, working on high-level sport horses. And that's actually where we got to know him as our client and someone who really believed heavily in the impact of nutrition and recommended a lot of platinum formulas for the horses under his care. And it was just a few short years ago now that our lucky stars aligned and he was able to become a member of the Platinum Performance team as our head on staff veterinarian. He's a brilliant mind, a board certified sports medicine and rehabilitation specialist and a great guy. And he is Dr. Matt Durham, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Dr. Durham. And thank you for joining me here today. Wow, what an intro. Thank you, Jesse. Absolutely. Well, it's all true and it's my pleasure. And I always learn so much from you. But today we are here to talk about a very specific topic and one that so many of us horse owners and veterinarians alike are confronted with. And we're putting a lens on equine sarcoids, which are the most common tumor type diagnosed in horses and in donkeys and in even our zebra friends, coincidentally. And these tumors, they account, correct me if I'm wrong, for about 90% of all equine cancers and they touch approximately 2% of the equine population. Um, So Dr. Durham, I'll turn this over to you. You are the expert on this to give us the rundown on sarcoids. But first, I wanted to share some quick facts on sarcoids with our audience. These guys don't discriminate when it comes to age, breed, and sex, but there are a few breeds, and I'll let you get into that, that are more predisposed to developing sarcoids. They are considered locally invasive, they're recurrent, and they do not spread to other organs, although they can frequently increase in size, they can multiply, and they can spread on the skin. So Dr. Durham, tell me, what are sarcoids, also known as fibrosarcoma, excuse me. Where do they develop? What size are they? Do they spread? You know, do they recur? Give us the down and dirty on sarcoids. Yeah. Well, so they, the term sarcoid, you can see it in the, in the term that when they were first described in 1936, although I think they'd been recognized before then, the, the researcher used the term sarcoid, which means sarcoma-like. So sarcomas are the main type of tumor that develops from connective tissue. So tissue generally underneath the surface, as opposed to carcinomas, which originate from cells on the surface, like the top layer of skin or the top layer of the intestines, that sort of thing. So sarcomas develop from the internal connective tissue. And he called it sarcoma or sarcoid because... They're sort of like sarcomas, but not exactly. And part of the reason is that they can take on so many different appearances and forms, which we'll get into a bit later. But there, it's it is a tumor. We often are faced with the oh well, you know, it's sort of sort of like a wart, but it's not really a tumor. 
That's unfortunately not true. It is a true tumor. But as you said, it doesn't, it doesn't truly become malignant like other tumors can. So it's not going to invade the, you know, the liver and that sort of thing. I guess there, there have been reports that that can happen very, very rarely. But in general, that's, that's just not heard of. I've not seen that myself. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So they occur. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to point out. So this is a reiterate rather. So sarcoids are not necessarily a metastatic type of cancer for horses, but it is something that needs to be taken seriously. Right. I mean, I've heard the term benign negligence with, with sarcoids that a lot of horse owners will be like, Oh my gosh, this is an annoyance. I'm, I'm going to hope it just heals on its own, but that typically is not the case. Correct. Right. Yeah. They, you know, they occur kind of all over the, and in general, occasionally they will regress on their own. Some will just remain dormant for a long time, but in general, they're more likely to either multiply in number or start to increase in size and aggressiveness. So in general, just like with a lot of diseases, early intervention is always going to be better. For the most part, they, they tend to be more common in areas with thinner skin and less hair. So sometimes around the, the face, in the, in the inner thigh area and groin, they occur, but they can really occur anywhere. They do occur on the limbs, although in general, not quite as commonly, except associated with wounds and, and scrapes and things like that. That is something that can make them a little bit tough to diagnose. You know, when you think about wounds, they're mistaken a lot for the healing process and part of the wound and that sort of thing. But we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute, but I want to talk risk factors real quick for sarcoids. I mentioned that there's been, you know, there's not necessarily a certain breed age, so on that these target, but in, in one way, there, there has been an, an identified genetic component to sarcoids, and that does point us towards some breeds that may be at a slightly higher risk. You know, all breeds may be susceptible, but some are at a higher risk. So can you take us through the breeds that most often encounter sarcoids? And also, there happens to be one that has a little bit more natural resistance to it. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, the the ones that seem to be the most at risk are not really horses, they're the donkeys. But in terms of the of horses, it's a little interesting because in the UK and the US, the patterns are a little bit different. There's some report in the UK that quarter horses might be a little less susceptible. In the US, it's very common to see quarter horses. Appaloosas, Arabians, thoroughbreds affected, and certainly warm bloods. We're less common in standard breads and some other, maybe some people feel it's thinner skinned horses are more at risk than thicker skinned horses. But yeah, the interesting thing is that lipizzaners do seem to be the most resistant, which is sort of interesting. They have determined certain genetic risk factors that are, um, that are, you know, well known, but it's not a, it's not like an on off switch, you know, it's not like HYPP where you have it or you don't have it. This is really more a susceptibility type of thing. In the news now, they talk about genetic risks for all sorts of things, you know, certainly 
breast cancer among them. But we know that with a lot of those, you can have the gene that predisposes you to something and be perfectly fine through your whole life. So it is, it's not a, a pre, predetermined fact that if you have this, that you're going to, to develop sarcoids. So it's, we're certainly not to a point where we would ever say, oh, you know, well, this horse has the sarcoid, so it shouldn't be apparent to a foal. Probably one of the things that is known is that horses that have the genetic abnormality tend to, when they get sarcoid, they tend to get more aggressive sarcoid. They tend to get larger numbers of the sarcoids. So it probably, if you had two horses that had really aggressive sarcoids, you might just say, you know, maybe we should skip breeding that pair. But in general, those are the, that risk factor is, it's only one part of the story. And it does seem that, that the areas of, of thinner skin and areas that sweat and with with thinner skinned and hairless areas seem to be the areas that are targeted the most. So that's where the fly component potentially comes in as a risk factor, like with a lot of diseases. That certainly hasn't been mapped out perfectly, but it is, it is something that we want to try to avoid. And then, of course, the other thing is, you know, horses that have a healthy, balanced immune system tend to deal with some of these interlopers a little bit better. And certain tumors, you know, our bodies fight tumors with our immune system. So when your immune system is working at its best, it's going to give us the best odds of keeping these things at bay and hopefully not allowing them to proliferate too much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really good point, you know, maintaining quality health, maintaining a good plan of nutrition. Obviously, that's the world we come from. Absolutely. But I, I also thought it was interesting. You know, I've heard you talk in the past about we, we say there's really no age discrimination with this, but it was surprising to me to learn that such young horses are actually the most prevalent group. So between three and six years old. And, you know, we always picture horses that are a little bit older having these, these different <clears throat> types of concerns that you deal with. But you know, it happens in pretty young horses. There's been speculation that geldings are more at risk, but, you know, it, leave, it, it leaves me wondering, is it because we've got such a vast amount of geldings in this country or, you know, what, what is the actual reason for that? And I guess like so many other things, more science is needed in the study of sarcoids. Absolutely. Yeah. There's still, there's still a surprising amount that's not completely understood about the, you know, the cause and, and the, in the risk factors for sarcoids. Yeah, it seems like it. But, you know, one thing that they, they being the, the almighty, they is starting mm -hmm. to piece together is the root cause of sarcoids. And you had mentioned the fly component to that. So transmission from horse to horse, and there's a viral component. So can you talk to me a little bit about that viral component and how that plays into the development of sarcoids from a root cause perspective? Yeah, this, this is really an interesting story too, because the bovine papilloma virus has been associated with sarcoids. And there are two versions of that, type one and type two. Most places, the, 
BV, one is more likely to be the cause, but in a Canadian study, they found the opposite. BPV2 was more common. But what's interesting, there are a couple of things. One is that papillomaviruses in general are very species specific. So when you have one in cattle, it doesn't affect horses. But in this case, it does seem that the bovine papillomavirus is involved. But the relationship is not quite as straightforward as some people had initially thought when they were first discovering the virus in sarcoids. So one study took bovine papillomavirus from some active lesions in cattle, and they injected it into horses. And the, not surprisingly, it did cause sarcoid-like lesions. But these lesions all continuously regressed, so they just went away on their own. And if you look at what happens in cattle with the BPV, they develop these wart-like lesions, and they're always self-limiting. They will go away. But while they're active, they, active, they have a lot of active live virus in them. And in horses, that's not been the case. They're, they're not really finding some of the normal machinery and evidence that the virus is actually replicating. And when, you've, and when they took the, the, the tumors that were induced experimentally like this, they were not able to create secondary tumors, sarcoids, in horses. So there's absolutely a link to bovine papillomavirus, but it's it's a little more complicated than than was initially thought. And I think there's still a lot to learn there. Most people think that it's spread probabilized and that the 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 virus is carried from you know cattle to horses. But of course, we'll see it in horses where there are no cattle around. And there's one other theory that some of the researchers actually think could be valid, and that is that it's possible that the flies actually bring cells over from one tumor to another, because we know that there is some potential contagion uh, from horse to horse that can happen. And that's where the, the idea that you know fly control can be helpful they'll see it in outbreaks. As you were talking about with the zebras, the they have found it in multiple zebras in in you know in bunches. So they think that it does spread, although they're certainly be sharing a lot of genetics too. The list of risk factors is probably not completely <laughs> written yet. And I think I'd really love to see some more heavy-duty research on sarcoids. I think it. I think there are some layers that still need to be peeled back. Oh my goodness! So if sarcoids weren't enough and an enigma, there's a lot of questions still out there. It seems like, and like so many things surrounding horses, flies are a problem. So the fly control remains very important. And you know, I want to move into diagnostics a little bit and talking about horse owners and getting your perspective on what we can look out for, you know, what are the warning signs of sarcoids? What are some of the telltale signs that we need to, you know, keep an open eye on that could tell us, you know, it's, it's time to go see our veterinarian about this because they can be pretty inconspicuous when they want to be in their early stages, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, and that's it's worth talking about the different forms. We don't need to go into crazy detail on it, but they range in appearance very dramatically. The, the simplest one is called an occult sarcoid. This is an area that might just look like a little bit of sort of flaky skin, maybe, often with no hair. This is a sarcoid. The verrucous type, that's a fancy word for wart-like. So that's the kind that you would see that, you know, when we think of papillomas, that's what, that's what we would see. The nodular and then the fibroblastic ones are sort of similar. They're going to be these raised areas. They're, they're enlarged masses. And then, then you get sort of mixed ones. And then there's a malevolent one that's really aggressive. You'll see only that is described as a malignant sarcoid, but that term's a bit confusing because in general, when you're talking about tumors, malignant means that it can, you know, that it is going to spread throughout the body, but that's, that's not the case with, with these. So those are the main, the main types. It's worth, you know, just as you're grooming, just map everything out, you know, and of course we know that horses like to get scrapes and bumps and all sorts of things. Those for the most part are you know, going to heal. They're going to change. They're going to go away. But if if they don't, that's certainly an error worth worth looking at. Uh, one of the there are a couple of confusing things about sarcoids. One is that they do happen at wound sites, and as many horse owners know, especially on the limbs, as wounds heal, sometimes if you if you're not able to sew it closed they'll heal with granulation tissue, which in normal circumstances, then the skin just grows over. But in certain circumstances, there's this proud flesh where it's just this sort of granulation tissue that is, it's called proud because it's up above, it's beyond the skin line. And that's kind of a, you know, a normal thing. It's, it's a nuisance. It's something to be dealt with. But occasionally where that wound is, what looks like proud flesh could end up being a sarcoid. So if you have a wound that's really not healing, that's really not coming along, it's possible that that has been transformed into a sarcoid, which obviously changes, changes things quite a lot. But yeah, in general, any kind of mass could probably be a sarcoid. The other thing to remember is that you can have more than one tumor type on a horse, right? You could have a gray horse that has a melanoma and a sarcoid. You could have a horse with a lot of pink skin around the eyes, say, that would develop a squamous cell carcinoma, just like pink-skinned people do. Those squamous cell carcinomas, again, carcinoma, it's that top layer of skin, but they can have somewhat similar appearances, and you can have more than one type of tumor. So, Anything that looks suspicious is definitely worth having evaluated. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, they they can they can hide, they can be a little bit elusive. So thank you for that that explanation. Now tell me, you know, when we as horse owners arrive to our veterinarian, tell me about the diagnostics and how veterinarians are identifying and confirming sarcoids. And also there's no one size fits all approach to the treatment of sarcoids, unfortunately. Oh. 
Uh, talk to me about those available treatments. Once you've confirmed that you know what you're dealing with, this is in fact a sarcoid. <clears throat> what are the options in a veterinarian's arsenal? The success rates? When does a veterinarian choose certain treatments over others and for what types of sarcoids? So first diagnostics and then treatments, if you would. Okay, yeah. So the like with any tumor, the gold standard is to get a biopsy. And that's, that sounds great when, when a tissue sample is sent to the lab, they can identify it. So that's the good news part of that. The problem is that sarcoids tend to be very reactive. So a sarcoid that's sort of cooking along, not really changing, if we cut into it, a lot of times that causes it to accelerate and kind of go into hyper, hyperdrive and really get kind of out of control. So most veterinarians are reluctant to biopsy or do surgery unless they have, are sort of assuming it's a sarcoid, they want to just confirm it, and they're going to do some follow-up treatment. So it's not wrong to do a biopsy, but we need to have kind of a, a plan going forward. Because of that reactivity, a lot of veterinarians don't choose to do a biopsy. And, you know, the good news is, for the most part, they're so common and they take relatively common forms that, for the most part, we do know what, what they are. So there, a lot of sarcoids are diagnosed by biopsy right away. As you said, there, there are a million treatments. And like with most diseases, when there are a million different treatments, it means that none of them are perfect. <laughs> that's going to be my next thought. So none of them work that well. Great. <laughs> that's the frustrating thing, you know? Yeah. So depending on how big it is, obviously surgical removal is a key, particularly for bigger ones. But again, the problem is even, even if we think we have really wide margins, like you would do with most tumors, where you try to go, okay, I'm going to cut into this healthy looking tissue like sarcoid. Most of the time, you're still going to be there. There are these little tendrils that sort of out in the main mass that you would irritate. And so it's not uncommon sarcoids to recur after surgery or to, to sort of start spreading and getting aggressive after surgery. So that's why a lot of times surgery is paired with some other treatment. People will use some other forms of surgery, cryo or laser surgery. So they're either freezing it or using the laser. The potential advantage to both of those is that it kills, it doesn't just slice through tissue, but it kills tissue. And there's also sort of a, a prolonged effect, particularly in faster divided cells. So there's some, that's part of the reason that some surgeons really prefer to use those methods when they're doing surgery. For the most part, like Dr. Naughton Belt from the UK, who's studied these as much as anyone, he likes to do a surgery where it's just completely pulled out. It's, he likes to do a traditional you know, scalpel surgery, sharp dissection, and then he follows up with, with some other treatment. Because it is a tumor, then chemotherapy tends to be a relatively common treatment. Now, it's not the typical chemotherapy that we think of with, with people where it's given 
you know, in the vein and circulates through the whole body. Here, it's done either on the surface or within the tumor itself. And there are a couple of different tactics that are, that are attempted to do that. The, the way that I learned in vet school was to use cisplatin, which is a platinum-containing bond, and it would be mixed in a type of oil, and then that keeps it local. So you inject it, and you would do you know dozens of injections, tiny injections throughout it, and the idea there is that the, the chemotherapeutic over time would sort of leach out and would kill the tumor. And that, that is a fairly effective treatment, actually. <clears throat> After that, they developed some other systems where the cisplatin was put in sort of a bead that dissolved. So you would implant that at the time of surgery. Now there are some people that prefer a similar drug called carboplatin, which in people at least has fewer overall side effects, although it's a chemotherapeutic, so it has side effects too. One of the really exciting ways that the chemotherapy can be delivered is called electrochemotherapy. This is, a lot of referral practices offer this now. It requires general anesthesia because you're sending electrical signals through the body, which are not comfortable and cause movement and things. But what it does is it opens the cell walls essentially so that the chemotherapeutic can get in. Normally, cisplatin, say, is absorbed very slowly into these cells. So it, it, it's not a, an effective treatment in that way, in that it's, it's not getting in. Once it's in, it's effective, but it doesn't get in as effective. By using electrochemotherapy, it sort of opens the gates, so to speak, so that the then the concentration gradient, meaning there's more on the outside than the inside, pushes the chemotherapeutic inside the cells. So at certain surgical facilities, I know Alamo Pintado certainly does this, they'll remove the larger part of the mass, and then they'll do electrochemotherapy. And they've had really pretty good success. And most of the papers that have been done that describe that technique are, are reporting similar successes. So that's kind of an exciting development. And again, not available everywhere, and it's not the only way to do it, but it is a good way to do it. There are a couple other, because it is um, something that potentially could respond to immune therapy, then there's some, the BCG injections occasionally will work. There's, there's also some thought about, and some work that's been done in trying to develop a vaccine for this, because the papillomavirus should be something that the body could form immunity to, recognize, and then destroy it before it's able to set up shop. So far, that's not been as easy as, as we'd hoped. Certain versions of that, autologous implantation, which essentially is a crude form of vaccine where you take some of the affected tissue, in this case, tumor, and you freeze it, so it kills everything there. But then the proteins that are associated with the virus in particular would be present, and then the body would sort of learn to attack that virus. So that's been done with some success. 
but so far has certainly not proven to be the answer. At, at the sort of simplest in terms of uh, trying to treat topically, there are a couple approaches and there's, there's one, there's a drug called Effudex, it's 5-fluorouracil and there's some others that are sort of similar to that. Dermatologists use 5-fluorouracil Effudex on people, it's really effective at sort of attacking those cells that, that need it. If you've done this and you have that applied to your face, you're probably going to want to be away from the public for a while because it'll, it'll cause some serious eruptions. It's doing its job. It's killing those cells, but it's, it can be quite effective. And some people have found that to be very effective, particularly on the smaller sarcoids. Then there, there are some other things that can also be used that the, the blood root extracts can, can also be used topically and can often do a good job. When I started, that was sort of my go-to treatment for a lot of the sarcoids. They would sort of get angry, you know, they'd look angrier and then they'd fall off. And then a lot of times that would either be gone or there would be a, just a small remnant remaining and we would reapply and on the smaller one, and then that would go away. And in general, I would tell people what's great about it is that it's only going to attack the sarcoid. It won't attack normal tissue. Unfortunately, that's not uh, always the case. I've had a couple cases where I applied it and there was a massive local reaction. There was one sort of in the, in the axilla, so the armpit area in a horse, and we applied it. And this poor horse had a reaction that was about a foot in diameter. It was really aggressive. And the owner was, just felt horrible because she felt that she'd made it worse. But in the end, that horse needed to have other treatment to have it completely abolished. But it did help, just it was not pretty as we were going. I think you could argue that maybe that meant that the, the sarcoid had some of those tendrils that were all throughout that region and that we were really affecting all of that, which maybe needed to happen, but it certainly wasn't as straightforward as straightforward and simple as we had hoped. The last thing that people have done in an attempt to, to lessen the effect of sarcoids, and this really hasn't been studied well, but that's to try some, some oral supplements that have an effect on the immune system. In general, for me, it's always good to have your immune system working the way it's supposed to. So I don't think there's really any downside to it. And certainly we know how important gut health is, you know, even though it seems completely unrelated, gut health affects the immune system in such a profound way since about 70% or more of the immune system resides there. So if you have if you have dysfunction in that area then your immune system isn't going to work as well and your immune system is either going to overreact or underreact to external invaders let's say so for me the enhancing the the normal function of the immune system is always a good thing i think that sort of that sort of covers the the main 
treatments that are done, although there are certainly other things. I don't, let's see, did we mention radiation? That's, that's another one that's done, you know, it is a tumor. No, my, I think that was extremely thorough. So thank you for taking us through all of that. And like you said, there's a wide array of treatments available because there is certainly no one size fits all. So it sounds like depending heavily on the type of sarcoid, the stage of sarcoid and how that particular horse is reacting to treatment is, is going to be laying the roadmap for which direction veterinarians want to go. But it's it's not an easy process by any means, that's for sure. Don't we wish it was like so many things in life? Oh, yeah. But Dr. Durham, I kind of want to round out, you know, our discussion by saying, what do you want us to know? You know, as horse owners, mm -hmm. what's our takeaway, you know, with sarcoids here? What do you want us to understand about them in a nutshell? And what do we want the folks listening to walk away from this, you know, knowing, looking out for, so on? Well, I think I think one thing is just to remember that it is truly a tumor, that it's not quite as scary as some of the tumors that can, you know, invade the internal organs, but that it should be taken seriously. And that like with many diseases, early intervention makes a difference. So, you know, when your veterinarian's out, show them the little bumps and, and things. It's worth it's worth having those mapped out. And it's possible that you might do the, as you said, the benign neglect treatment for a little while and just keep an eye on it. But a lot of times it's worth, it's worth intervening. And then I think the other part is just that so often we forget that gut health is overall health and that, and immune health. And, you know, it's good for joints and it's good for itchy skin and it's good for tumors. Just obviously we all want to be as healthy as possible and keeping our equine friends that way is going to help in keeping these things to a minimum as much as possible. Absolutely. No, I think those are all great points. And, you know, it's been said for ages that all disease starts in the gut. And so I think that that also mm -hmm. translates over to treatment for all disease has a has a gut component. So keeping the, the gastrointestinal system, i.e. also the immune system, which resides largely there, keeping that all healthy is so important. And, and really, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, about sarcoids. I always learned so much from you, Dr. Durham. Half the time, I'm wondering why I'm even here on these things is you could just take this and run with it. I think you do such an amazing job making the complicated simple. So please join me really in, in thanking Dr. Durham for being here with me today to talk all things sarcoid related and to give us a horse owner perspective on what we should be looking out for to better identify these sarcoids and really giving us the tools to be an active part of our horse's treatment and recovery. So I really appreciate it, Dr. Durham. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you, Jesse. And thank you all for tuning in. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us. And until next time, I'm Jesse Bengoa. We'll see you for the next episode where we discuss more with our elite athletes and the incredible veterinarians that we get to work with every day. And, you know, as always, health, performance, and longevity, there's no doubt it starts within. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.